the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to Andrew Williams. Andrew is the founder and managing director of Agility Consulting Group. He has been an adjunct faculty at the Australia Graduate School of Management at the University of New South Wales for over 10 years, where he facilitates executive programs in adaptive leadership, leadership agility, and personal growth. He is also a graduate of the Art and Practice of Leadership Development at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, which has enabled him to work with teams in the area of adaptive leadership and transformational change. In his work, Andrew regularly works with senior teams to help them work through issues that are important to them. He is able to facilitate dialogue, help groups anchor to purpose, and hold up a mirror to enable groups to see how their dynamics are helping or hindering their ability to make progress. In this episode, we discuss the important distinction between learning, development, and growth, the impact limiting beliefs have on stopping us from bridging the gap between our current reality and our future aspirations, and finally, the role of experimentation to help make progress on change that matters. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure, to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. So here's my first question for you, Andrew. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? Uh, self-reliance means my effort makes a difference. So a sense of that self-responsibility and I know I can uh, make a difference in my life, in my team, uh, in this relationship, whatever it might be. So I think now is a good time to kind of address some of the things we said we would talk about, some of the points that we said we would uh, look into. Let's start with what you feel is the distinction between learning, development, and growth. How would you define that? And, and obviously, why is that even important? Yeah. So, look, I think it's important. Uh, uh, one of the main reasons it's important, I think in a lot of my work, um, you know, I, I run workshops, development workshops, training workshops. Um, people often talk about that they're a good learner. And I always see the learning part as the knowing part. So there's, there's a great model in development, which is called um, uh, knowing, doing and being. And learning is the knowing part. So it's, it's easier, it requires that sense of willingness and motivation, but it's really just the start. It's, a, it's very much around acquiring new information and, and knowledge. So. You know, I, I, the example I often use is how to have a difficult conversation. I can go up to a workshop and do a two hour session on how to have a difficult conversation. So theoretical level, I know what to do, but actually doing that and doing it well goes beyond learning. And that's where the development part comes in. So for me, development is that consistent application of that knowledge um, and it's that it's much more practical it's in that doing space so it's it's about putting in place that learning in real life situations with a view of refining it because i may learn how to do it but when i get into the the workplace and have these difficult conversations for example it was clunky i make mistakes i get this bit right i get that bit wrong so it requires one to do is to be able to learn from that, to learn about uh, the mistakes, what you can do differently and continually refine the method, whatever that method is, whatever that skill is. Um, and it's consistently doing that. The third part I think is the really important part is the growth part. And that's the, that's the being part, the knowing, doing, being part. 
And so being or embodying is there is is much more around a breakthrough in how you think, engage and act. So how we see and operate in the world is based on how we how we grow. So I, I see growth as a mindset shift. So if we use that example around having the difficult conversations, one of the things that might make it clunky for me is this limiting belief that I don't want to upset people. And so uh, the growth or the breakthrough or the mindset shift is very much around, uh, I, I can. this is effortless for me now. Um, I'm not beholding to this limiting belief. I know that this difficult conversation is actually helpful for me and helpful for the other person. I know that this is going to deepen the relationship with this person. So it's a shifting mindset of going, oh, I don't want to upset them. I don't want to hurt them. I'm really uncomfortable. Um, you know, I'd hate to be in their position. It's one of much more around a different mindset. So they're the sort of the three distinctions I make. And it is important because a lot of people think that they're great learners, but they don't translate that into development and that consistent application and nor do they often get to that, um, that sense of growth. So when we're talking about learning, Andrew, what, in your experience, what would you say is some of the obstacles? I mean, because it's one thing to say that somebody wants to learn, but oftentimes they are their worst enemy, right? Their own worst enemy. And they put lots of things in the way, obstacles that stop them from learning effectively. What have you seen in your work that seems to be the common denominators here? Yeah, look, I, I think part of it is, is that people are very good at skillfully avoiding things that they don't want to do. Um, and they'll use a variety of different reasons to want to do that. So an obstacle is simply um, the motivation. Um, you know, uh, am I motivated to do something about this? Am I motivated to, to, to learn about this particular thing? Um, part, part of it is, is people don't see... They don't have that aspiration of around, okay, how will this actually help me? How does it help me in the here and now? If it doesn't help me in the here and now, and I think that's an obstacle around learning, is that people don't see the benefit for some time, which comes in the application of development. So people are very much into this immediate gratification. And so with immediate gratification, if people can't see that, you know, that uh, they're not making a difference, or they're not, um, they're not seeing a difference, then they're likely to actually um, uh, stop the learning process. I think one of the other uh, main obstacles is actually the skill of uh, learning. I, I, I'm a big believer that um, people feel as though that if they immerse themselves in say a classroom, for example, uh, you know, at a workshop, that, that that's enough for learning. Um, but actually learning does take uh, a lot of work and it requires us to be willing to do that work and knowing how to do that work. So the, um, you know, I always go back to uh, Anders Ericsson who talks about the concept of deliberate practice. And, uh, you know, when you want to learn a skill, you actually have to break down the components. He refers to it as chunking and breaking it down and actually purposely practicing each of those chunks there. Um, and a lot of people do that. They feel as though they practice, but they don't do it with an intentionality of purposeful practice. So an example might be if I go back to the difficult conversations, I, I might chunk it down to, okay, there's the scripting, there's the preparation, and there's the managing of emotions. And uh, I might have to do the real work around the managing emotions part. I can chunk it all down and I can get proficient at this and this, but actually I've got to get proficient at the managing of, of the emotions there. So it's knowing how to learn. And I, and I think the other thing uh, with this is a lot of learning comes from what we refer to as heat experiences or a willingness to get outside your comfort zone. Um, and, you know, humans are very good at um, minimising emotional risk and maximising emotional security. So getting out the comfort zone is not easy. Uh, and so if we have an unwillingness to step outside the comfort zone, I think that's, a, uh, that's another obstacle 
uh, that we put in our way that stops us, um, you know, taking that path around learning. Yeah, because I, I guess people don't want to fail, right? They don't want to look bad. They, obviously, the emotional side of things is set up in such a way often for people is that they're looking to secure their survival. And if that means that taking a risk would mean some kind of impact to themselves, be it their ego or otherwise, that automatically kind of becomes the, the obstacle for them and they can't go forward. And so it's overcoming that, right? Yeah, it's a really good point. That, that fear of failure and, as I said, wanting to minimise that risk. And so, look, I'm a big believer that, um, you know, if we take those small steps outside our comfort zone, it does make the comfort zone bigger, which makes, it, which makes us more resilient that way. We've got a greater capacity, uh, I guess, of, of, of coping with uh, change and, and complexity. But it does require us to actually lean into that sense of anxiety, knowing that the anxiety is actually good for us. I think you raise a really important point there, and the research is showing this more and more, is that when you want to make a shift, when you want to move towards something that's uncomfortable, it is helpful to chunk it, as you said, break it down, and be fastidious about actually achieving small incremental gains. I think there's also something to be said, and I'd like to get your, um, your view on this, on at least when you, make, when you make that move and you see that achievement, to at least give yourself a pat on the back. Right. So I think a lot of times is that we don't spend enough time actually giving ourselves that sense of accomplishment that we should because we see it as a small move towards our goal, so to speak. But it's not really the goal itself. And so we kind of lose track of the fact that actually, you know what, just making that first step, making that, that behavior change is crucially important in moving towards what will ultimately become, quote unquote, the, the goal that we've set ourselves, that big goal to achieve. Uh, look, it's a really important point. And it just reminds me of the, the story I tell in, in workshops around deliberate practice. Uh, and and, and it, when Ericsson did the initial experiments, uh, they had to pay someone to come in and he did it on uh, memory, you know, how to improve short-term memory by uh, memorising digits. And over the next three months, it, the, the person who was going through it was able to memorise 20 digits. And eventually, over the next 18 months, he was able to get to 100. But what was really interesting in the research was that um, he didn't have to get paid. He came in on his own volition and, and because he could see his progress. And you make a good point there that once we start to see our progress, it actually gives us the incentive and motivation to want to keep doing the work. And, and I often say this to you know, leaders who are coaching and developing their people, that if you are seeing someone making progress, celebrate that. That is incredibly important. Even if it's a small step, um, it doesn't matter. A, a small step, celebrate it. I'd much prefer to celebrate something where someone gets from a 5 out of 10 to a 6 out of 10 than not say anything until they get to that 8 out of 10. Uh, because that's going to give them the motivation to want to keep uh, keep doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And a, and a nice little dopamine hits at the same time, right? Oh, I, 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 absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a runner and, you know, I never used to be a runner. But once I noticed that I was improving in my running, I just wanted to keep doing it. You know, I would read about it. I would watch YouTubes about it. I just wanted to keep doing it. And partly because I could see my improvement in it. And, and I, I think that's an incredibly important part of the, the whole development process. One of the things I've been reflecting on lately, and I think this speaks to what we're talking about, is that if you want to make change, you have to change your behavior first before you change your thoughts. I think a lot of times people have this notion that they need to change the way they think first before they get anywhere. But actually, if they make some behavioral changes, which is speaking to these small incremental successes, there is far more likely that their, their thoughts, their psychology will fall in line with what they're actually trying to work towards. Like you said, right, you know, you were never a runner, but once you started making those behavioral changes to run, and of course, you probably didn't run anywhere near what you run now, but you at least got out there and you actually did it. Once you did that, then your psychology started changing. And then suddenly, as you saw incremental successes, then you wanted to know more. Then you wanted to learn more. You wanted to know more. And you start reading around the subject that you thought you would never would have done in the first place 
because that wasn't the thing you wanted to do. You never saw yourself as actually being a runner per se. A absolutely. I think, I think the good point with something like that is that um, it's a little bit about, you know, when I coach people and they do have a bit of a fear is um, uh, fake it until you make it. You know, sometimes what we do, if we actually go out and do the behavior, it actually reinforces the mindset that we can do this. And, uh, you know, I was reading a good book by BJ Fogg, who does a lot of work around habits. He's out of Stanford and he's just written this book uh, called Tiny Habits. And his view is, is that from a habits perspective, if you want to develop the habit, make them as tiny as possible. For example, um, if you're not one to floss your teeth, floss one tooth and celebrate it. Or every time you brush your teeth, do two push-ups. Or every time you um, get a drink of water, um, um, uh, do a push-up or something like that. But it's, it's by doing it, it reinforces that actually I, I'm okay at this. I can do this. Yes, I've started off small, but as I say, every marathon requires a first step and it, 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 it doesn't matter how big the first step is. Yeah, I love that. That's really good. I'd, I'd probably look into that because it sounds interesting. And I, I really, um, I'm a big advocate of celebrating those small successes. I think, as I noted earlier, is that people tend to not do that, maybe because they feel kind of weird doing that, or they don't see the point of doing it. But in my experiences, it really is, you know, as you, as you create new habits, but you actually, like you said, go out there and do it, and then celebrate it as small as that achievement is, that incrementally builds up over time to where you actually start developing the fullness of your confidence so that you can actually take on greater and greater challenges. Yeah. And, and what, what, what's happening with the mindset is I think with people from a development and a, and a learning perspective is that they, they, they're encouraged to set the bar high. So, you know, here I am at a four out of 10 and my, you know, my manager wants me to be an eight out of 10, or I want to be an eight out of 10 because I've got high expectations. And, and, and invariably people in their mind uh, fail. So if we are able to make the smaller steps, and that's where what we're moving away from is actually celebrating uh, a standard or an outcome, we're now celebrating progress. And, you know, Carol Dweck and her growth mindset really pops in here because it is very much around making progress and persisting and effort. And that's what development is. It's, it's work. If you want to grow and change as a person um, and to develop in whatever field it might be, um, you've got to make a start. And, and if you've got a mindset of uh, uh, progress and rewarding that, uh, you are more likely to persist than someone who's trying to aim for the very best and, and not being able to get there because the gap is too big for them. Mm, totally agree. One of the things I would like to just come back to, because you mentioned it a couple of times as an example, the idea of having these difficult conversations. Could you maybe give us some insight into how somebody would work towards achieving that? Because definitely when I think about what this whole podcast is about, about learning specific skill sets, we all have to have difficult conversations, either that be it with our, with our children, with, a, with our partner, definitely in the world with our boss, you know, in the, in, in the world that we move in with our friends. A lot of times people don't want to have difficult conversations. I almost feel like people, especially in this day and age, definitely don't want to have those difficult conversations. You know, avoidance seems to be a much easier route, which of course it seems initially, but you never get to the crux of the problem and you never are able to overcome the situation that you find yourself in where you are having difficulties with another person. So what, what would that be? Like, what would that look like? What would the process be? Yeah, look, it's a, it's, it's a good point. And if, if I, if I go back to what I talked about before, I, I think there are some things that are uh, really important that aren't that difficult to sort of uh, uh, learn. And that, that is, the first thing uh, that I would always talk about is what's the outcome or purpose that you want from a conversation? Uh, because no matter what happens in that conversation, you can always ground yourself back to, back to purpose. So what do I want to get out of this? Do I want to make this person aware of what's going on? Do I want to better understand 
um, what's happening for them. Um, and, and, and so it really needs to be purpose driven. Otherwise you get sidetracked, emotions come in and it can be, it can get a bit messy. I think the second thing is, is um, and if it's a really important conversation, um, an element of scripting, and that, that might sound strange. It doesn't sound strange in a business context. You know, you collect data, you get examples, you might get some stakeholder feedback, and that informs the type of conversation you have. But, you know, I know when I've had to have a difficult conversation with uh, someone in my personal life, um, I've thought about the purpose, but then I've scripted it in terms of, you know, uh, you know, what do I want to cover here? What's important? What's, what don't, what, what, you know, what can't I afford to miss in this particular conversation here? Um, so I think that's important. Then I think it comes down to two other things which are much more uh, important and often a little bit harder. The first is actually the mindset that you have in the conversation. So one of the things around mindset that uh, when I talk to people is uh, I talk about um, uh, listening to learn. So showing curiosity. And when I go into this conversation, I'm going to go into it from a place of listening to learn in, in, in this. The second, the second element of this is to approach it in a way that says, how can this conversation deepen the relationship I'm going to have with this person? Um, and, and these, you know, uh, Jennifer Garvey Berger, who's, uh, who's someone I really admire and um, I love her work in the leadership space. She talks about this. She talks about, you know, when we have a difficult conversation, how can we actually uh, deepen the relationship? How can we work alongside this person as a way of helping them and them helping you to make progress and move forward. Whereas often what we do is we go and think about what do I want to get out of this as opposed to how can we help each other uh, move forward here. And, and I think the, the final bit of this is that it does require a sense of vulnerability. And, and the vulnerability is around the uncertainty and the interpersonal risk associated with having a difficult conversation. And even for myself, um, I, I still find that messy, that sense of where is this going to go? And, and I can feel the emotions in me. Um, but I always go back to my mindset of, uh, you know, what's my purpose? How can I listen to learn and also to show curiosity in this person, but also how can I approach this with a mindset of uh, I am, how can I deepen the relationship that I have with this person? So they're, they're the, probably the key things that I would uh, focus on in a difficult conversation. No, I think that's very helpful. I really like the idea of listening to learn. Uh, Potentially, the way that I might describe that would be mindful communication, being fully open to the experience without judgment. One of the things that came out of my doctoral research, which I didn't anticipate when I worked with leaders specifically on helping them achieve mindfulness in high performance environments, was this idea of mindful communication, something that I didn't think that was going to come up that did. And how positive that was when they were having these difficult conversations, opening themselves, like you said, being vulnerable, but allowing the conversation to unfold without judgment. Because I think most people, when they say they're having a conversation, they're not really having a conversation. What they're doing is they're going in to win. I want to convince this person that I'm right and they're wrong. And I think when you go in with that kind of approach, you tend to, first of all, you're not going to get what you want. But second of all, that's where it ends up being an argument rather than a space where we can come to, you know, come to this realization that actually we can agree to disagree, but we're actually learning something from each other. And as you know, to deepening the relationship instead of creating this crevice that might feel then afterwards very difficult to close. Yeah, that's such a good point. And it just reminds me that mindful communication of that need to be, you know, uh, deeply present for the conversation. So it's, it's moving away, I think you used the word ego before, moving away from ego to be deeply pre present 
to actually have that mutual respect that it, that it is, um, you know, these things are messy, but there's a respect for the relationship and the other person uh, uh, in the process when you're having that conversation. And I'm just reminded as you, as you talk about that mindful communication of, um, of a guy who's no longer uh, with us, Marshall Rosenberg, who sort of pioneered a lot of the nonviolent communication. And he, he talks about when you're communicating with someone uh, and it's difficult, um, um, look for what they need from you and look, from, look towards how they're feeling. And he uses this lovely expression, um, look to what's alive in the person. And, and you can only do that through deep listening. Uh, and you can only do that through being, being present as well. So I think they're, they're really important. And come on, I, I just want to make another point, Rodney, is that, um, you know, around, around this, uh, I'm reminded of, you know, in our society at the moment, we have a lot of um, whataboutism. In other words, you know, it's, there's divisiveness and polarisation. You can see it in media. You can see it in politics. I see it here in Australia. You know, you can see it in the United States. And I'm a big believer that if we're unable to deeply listen to someone who has a different view and perspective, we can't actually make progress on, on the big issues. And so um, I'm reminded of this quote, and I can't remember who, who said it, but it was a New York Times journalist who said, you know, something like, you know, until you um, deeply understand somebody else's perspective, can you then start to disagree with them? Because if you're disagreeing with them first, it's all about your worldview winning rather than seeking to make a difference. And I, you know, when I, when I read that and I've sort of nuanced that a little bit, I just thought, yeah, that's really powerful. It just shows you how important listening is when we're trying to make progress on issues that are actually really tricky to us. Yeah, I think the key there is this idea that I mentioned earlier, having a non-judgmental approach, right? So, so sitting with somebody, allowing them to talk, you know, express themselves, being fully open to what they're saying without judgment, because it's putting that judgment in as where the problem comes in. That's, you know, as we typically do, right? <clears throat> we're having a conversation, a difficult conversation with somebody, we're not fully listening to them and we're already pre-planning in our head what our counter argument is going to be. And so we miss a lot of the nuances of that conversation. And that's where miscommunication is clearly going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's a bit like, you know, we're talking about listening to learn before, which is a, a mindset of curiosity as opposed to listening for my turn to talk, listening to interrupt, or even listening to fix uh, something. You know, uh, I'm reminded of when COVID-19 first hit and, you know, I would talk to some of my clients and I was listening to them and I could see myself going into listening to fix mode, which is, oh, have you tried that? What about a meditation? What about a walk at the end of the day? Um, you know, maybe drinking less alcohol, having some days off, that type of thing. But actually, you know, if I was truly listening to learn, I, I just would have explored um, the roller coaster emotions that they were feeling at the time, um, rather than seeking to fix, actually just being there for them and going, how can I learn about this person at this moment um, without any judgment and hold a space for them? And, and that, that, was, um, that was some really good learning for me during that, those early days. I think I've got better at that now, but in the early days, I just wanted to listen to fix. And I don't think that that works um, uh, as well as listening to learn. Yeah, I think there's a really important point there too, is that, <clears throat> you know, sometimes you don't have to have a solution. You just have to be open to listening. You know, some people, you know, want, you know, a lot of times people just want to talk. They want to just express themselves. There may not be a solution and that's okay. But if I'm open to just being fully there and present and listening, it gives a person the opportunity to bring out what's been bothering them. And as you know, as they do that and you allow them the space to just explore that, that's where you really learn about them. And you may not necessarily need to give them a solution today, but just through allowing them to express themselves and as you learn more about them, 
in a couple of days time when you meet again, that might be the opportunity then to maybe potentially say, well, have you considered this? Absolutely. It goes back to what Marshall Rosenberg says. Um, you know, what does this person need from this conversation? And you're right. Sometimes they just need you to listen without, and that's it. Just create a safe space for me. I've had a tough day. I just want to talk about what's going on for me. And that's actually okay. So let's pivot a little bit. Let's talk about the second point, which I think lends itself to everything we've been talking about, you know, up until this, this point is that the impact of limiting beliefs and how that you know, really stops us from bridging that gap between our current reality and our future aspirations. I think limiting beliefs is something that comes up a lot, especially when I'm talking to people. I'd like to get your perspective on that. Yeah, so often a question I'll ask a, a team or an individual is that, you know, what is your current reality and what is your future aspiration? Because that gap there is their work. And uh, what, what makes it challenging is this, uh, concept that uh, Bob Keegan, who is uh, uh, a writer in uh, developmental psychology, he, he refers to it as one foot on the accelerator and one foot on the brake. In other words, I, I really want to get better at this uh, and I'm aspirational around this, but the brake is that limiting belief that I have. And so, you, you know, if I think about my myself, you know, I'd this was about three years ago and, um, you know, it's, it's funny, I'd, I'd, I'd been working in this space of immunity to change for some time and I thought I was running a marathon in New York and I went up to Boston and did this program with Bob Keegan and, you know, at, at first I was approaching this exercise, I'd done it many times before, but I was approaching this exercise and I thought, oh, I'll take it seriously this time. And um, so my aspiration uh, was... You know, I wanted to build meaningful relationships uh, in my life, both personally and professionally. And I went through it and I realised that that was my aspiration, but, but the break or the limiting belief for me was that I was actually, uh, or the assumption that I was making was that I'm probably uh, committed to something else. And, and what I mean by that, that's that competing commitment. So um, the assumption was that, or the belief was that if I show my true self to others and I'm vulnerable to others, then they may reject me and that would be devastating to me. I mean, that, that, what, that wasn't playing necessarily out at a conscious level, but it was playing out at a subconscious level. So what was happening is even though I had this aspiration to drive, not drive, but to build more meaningful relationships, what was going on in my life was um, I was um, staying independent. I was not showing any vulnerability. I wasn't maintaining relationships. Um, I was valuing competence. So, you know, here I was going, I want these meaningful relationships. Actually, I've got this belief that says that if I show my true self to another person or to others and be vulnerable, they actually might reject me. And that's what makes growth so complex is these limiting beliefs that we have. I mean, you know, people have that limiting belief of, um, you know, uh, I need to be in control or I need to be liked by others uh, or I need to be seen as busy or I need to be the perfect mother um, or I need to be the perfect um, um, partner. But what it does is it holds us back on having uh, the richest life that we can possibly have. And so when I went through this process um, and realised that, um, I, I felt for the first time in my life this deep sense of sadness that I wasn't connecting with other people because I was fearful of what they might think if I showed my true self and vulnerability. So, you know, at the end of 2017 um, and 2018, I went, I went on this journey and the, the journey was, um, I, you know, I wanted to do that work in that space. And, and this sort of leads to uh, one of the uh, other questions and points you will raise a bit later, but I'll, I'll give a brief um, talk about it now is that I, I realised that if I was going to make change, I needed to do the work 
And the way of doing the work was through this concept of experimentation. And so, uh, because the thing about change, and, and you'll know this with working with your client, it's not easy. It, it, you've got to be optimistic about it, but actually change and growth is not easy. We do skillfully avoid things. And so I, what I wanted to do, and I'm reminded of a quote by uh, uh, Joseph uh, Campbell, who, uh, who wrote, the caves you avoid has the treasures that you seek. And, and I love that quote because the caves that I are avoiding was meaningful, uh, deeper connections with other people. And so my, my intentional growth area was around vulnerability and connectedness. And so what I did was ran these experiments to take me outside my comfort zone to really lean into the anxiety of showing my true self. And so I did a range of different things. You know, I, I, I ran a marathon at Mount Everest. I, uh, I did meditation in Thailand, you know, for 14 days. I, um, I did a month of gratitude. I, I did stand-up comedy. But I just ran these things to really just show that um, I wanted to move away from being seen to be competent because my belief was that if I was competent, I would be okay. And actually that wasn't helping me from a relationship perspective. So what I, what I decided to do was actually put myself in a place of being incompetent and vulnerable and to see what would happen. And so by doing these uh, experiments, I learned a lot about myself. And, you know, it was really beautiful last year. I, I launched my uh, book and at, at that um, book launch, there were a number of people there who I hadn't probably seen for six to nine months and a number of them came up to me and said Andrew you're different you're warmer um, uh, you're softer what have you done and I, I just said to them look I've, I've just done the work on myself I, I, I identified a limiting belief that was holding me back and what I wanted to do was develop like a scientist a relationship with that limiting belief and don't get me wrong um, Rodney, that comes up for me all of the time. You know, whenever I feel triggered about something, it's usually related to that, I, but I have a more healthier relationship and I don't let it stop me from doing the things that, uh, that I feel that are important to me. So I feel as though that I've got a foot on the accelerator, but I don't have the foot on the brake as much as I used to do. No, I love that. So that was going to be my question. You kind of touched on it. Once you started opening yourself up, being vulnerable, what was the reaction from people? I mean, you said, you know, you, you, you met people nine months later and they said, hey, you know, Andrew, what have you been doing? You're a lot softer. But was there any other experiences like that on the way? Like as you were going through putting yourself in these, what you said, like an incompetent position so that you weren't always seemingly in control? What was the feedback? Was it what you expected initially because that was the thing that held you back or was it completely different to what you thought it was going to be? Uh, look, I was obviously hoping that it would be that and you, you often don't know how others' lived experience is of you. So, you know, it was really lovely to get that feedback. I, I, I think with anything, it goes back to the, the really good point you made before about progress. I remember being in, uh, in Thailand and it was a yoga meditation retreat and I hadn't done it either before and I could have done a week of it and I would have survived that. But I just thought, no, to really test myself out here, I'm going to do this for 14, you know, seven hours a day for 14 days and, and see what happens. And what I purposely did was to remove my ego around what I did um, and anything around incompetence to just talk about who I was and some of the, the anxieties that I have in my life uh, and uh, uh, some of the challenges and just be me. And, uh, but also to reach out to other people. And as a coach, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. I'm good at helping others to create that space to talk. But I, I haven't been great at showing that vulnerability myself. So I was purposeful around that. And it was really lovely the feedback that I got that people said to me on that retreat 
um, uh, the same thing. You know, you're warm, you, you're the glue of this group, you bring people together, you're so much fun. I love the way you listen to me. Um, I'm really going to miss you. And even from even now, I, I've, I've um, stayed in contact with three or four uh, of the group um, because I was able to establish that relationship with them. And, and I think when you see that, um, you get that feedback, you go, oh, well, maybe I can do this. Maybe if I, you know, and so, you know, I went off and lived in Bali for a month and I was at a co-working retreat and I did the same thing. And again, I got similar feedback. And I just thought to myself, because um, uh, for the first time, Romy, I actually expressed to people that, you know, I, and, and I never do this because as a coach, I always think I've got to put myself up on a pedestal that I've, I've got my stuff together. But, you know, I've, I've experienced trauma in my life and I've experienced anxiety. And I was willing to talk about that in a way that wasn't about self-disclosure. It was more about, hey, I'm a human being. And, and I think that enabled me to um, better connect with people. And it just gave me more, um, more confidence uh, uh, as well. So I think there's some of the things that I would um, reflect back on that really helped uh, at the time. I think what you were saying it is just something I've experienced too in my space and just where I am, especially in the martial arts world, there's this expectation that I, got, I have everything together. I never make any mistakes and I don't have you know, bad days or I'm always super motivated to get up and go out and train and never have days where I don't actually want to. And for a long time, I kind of just rode that, that, that train. You know, I kind of stayed on it. And I, that really became a crux for me at the end of the day because I just never felt that people truly fully understood me and who I was as a human being. And it wasn't until I started opening up and, and saying, hold on, you know what? The things that you struggle with is the same thing I struggle with. Even though I might be the coach, I'm struggling with those same things. And I think what it does is it gives other people permission then to just ease off on themselves and go, you know what? If, if Rodney is open about the struggles that he's having, and I'm struggling with the same things, then, then there's hope because clearly he's struggling with that, but he's found a way to overcome it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be looking to him as a mentor, as an example. Yeah, that, that's such a good point, Rodney, because what it does is it makes you relatable. That, that's what I learned is that when you are willing to share the authentic side and the vulnerable side of you, and let me make a point about this. You know, one of my... Uh, lessons around vulnerability is I always felt that you needed to be uh, feel safe to be vulnerable but what I've learned is actually by being vulnerable actually creates safety um, and that was a big thing for me and so uh, you, you know I found that the more vulnerable I was and uh, more open around who I was as well as showing curiosity in the other person I just felt that people were able to connect with me whereas I felt beforehand people were they might have connected with the professional me but I wasn't showing them the the real me and so one of the shifts for me is uh, what people see in my personal life and my professional life is actually the same person I try not to put on a costume I guess I play different roles if I'm a facilitator and, and uh, 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 someone gets cranky with me. I don't, it's not personal. It's my role as a facilitator when I might challenge them. Uh, but who I am as a person um, is, is interchangeable, you know, regardless of whether I'm in my professional or personal life. What you're talking about there is this idea of being congruent. And I think that's really important. I think a lot of people's problems and the stress comes from just playing different roles pretending to be something that they're not and not realizing that actually if you're congruent in everything you do in your personal life and your professional life and you show up as you are fully authentic, that is a powerful place to move from because people pick up on that, first of all. And second of all, that's where you do your best work. Absolutely. And I'll just add to that. I think it's an important point is, um, you know, it's not, it's not always about, um, giving of yourself where you end up being depleted. It's, it's actually being able to sometimes separate self from role. It's not necessarily separating the authenticity that you have, 
but uh, you know you might have a role as a as a coach or as a uh, uh, um, um, uh, let, let's say you you know you have the role as a father, and um, you know and your kids are cranky with you because of curfews and things like that. You know it's not as though they're cranky with you as the person. It's actually the role that you play as a father. And so one of the the, the good learning lessons that I've had over the past couple of years is is being able to separate self from role but still be authentic if that makes sense so still bring my authenticity but at the same time knowing that if there's criticism um, the criticism is not about me as a person as a human but it's actually might be about the role I might be playing um, uh, and that might be as a son or it might be as a coach so you've kind of hinted on this so let's let's look at this final point about the role of experimentation to help make progress and change that matters. What do you mean by experimentation and why is that even important? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a good point. So if we go back to what we talked about, about change being difficult, um, and uh, often, you know, when we're confronted with, uh, you know, New Year's, res New Year's Eve resolutions and they last three weeks and then it's over, it's often because it's of that limiting belief or it's too big. And so, uh, as we sort of alluded to it earlier, uh, one of the things that we can do is do these small experiments where what we're not doing is measuring the uh, outcome, but we're learning from the experiment. So I talk about an experiment, I'm talking about an action that takes you outside your comfort zone and aligns with your aspirations that you test objectively with a view to learning. So it's an action, you're stretched outside your comfort zone, but it's purposeful and you test it with a view to learning. And so um, it's important because um, we're more likely to make progress if we have a learning mindset as opposed to an outcome mindset, which is, oh, I didn't achieve what I wanted to achieve. I'm no good at this. I was never meant to do it, so I'm going to quit it to, okay, that didn't work as well as I like, liked, so I'm going to learn from that and do something different next time. So the process of experimentation, and I use this model called uh, ADAPT, which is firstly you need the aspiration. So what is it that I want to change that truly matters to me? So is it about I want to have more meaningful relationships, I want to uh, exercise more, I want to um, drink less, um, I want to um, be a better parent, whatever it might be. But what are my aspirations as a person? And, and what am I skillfully avoiding that if I changed that would really bring a benefit for me in my life? So there's an element of framing something in a positive light. So for me, I want to build more meaningful relationships in my life. The second thing, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, is it has to be the D is doable. So it has to be actionable, tangible, doable, and that you can do it sooner rather than later. Because if you feel as though you've got to do it later, um, you, you, you'll put it off. So it needs to be specific and observable. So, uh, so for example, it might be, um, you know, I want to run a 10 kilometer race. It might be, I've never run before. I'm just going to go and run, walk for 10 minutes, uh, three times a week. And that's doable, it's actionable. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. You learn from that. And that's the A part, always learning. Uh, and we put out that whatever experiment you're doing, it has to be safe to learn so, uh, or, or safe to fail. So, you know, you don't want to experiment by going, I want to have a difficult conversation. So I'm going to go into my boss and ask for a pay rise. Now, a, you may not get the pay rise, and B, it might lead to something else. So you're better off having a difficult conversation with a peer where you can learn from it there. But that's safe to learn. And don't focus on the outcome. Focus on your observations of what happened. What emotions did you experience? Um, how did you and others react? What worked? What didn't? And what can I do next? So having that learning mindset. The fourth one is P for progress. So incremental. So don't make something too big. Make it so that you're building on, on this each time. And so I remember when I was running the marathon at Mount Everest. So, 
you know, it's arduous enough to get up the top, but then running from base camp down to Nancy Bazaar with obviously you've got, um, uh, um, it's, it's tough from an altitude perspective. Um, but what I was able to do was um, just, you know, towards the end, it was putting one foot in front of the other. It was looking at a tree in the distance and saying, I'm just going to get to that tree. And then it was looking at a, um, a, a, um, a suspension bridge. And I've just got to get to that suspen suspension bridge. Um, but it is about incremental. Just do things small and build on that. And, you know, and this is the thing that I've learned the most, which is uh, the key for ADAPT, which is tenacity. Never give up. Keep showing up. Uh, keep presenting yourself. Because the more you show up and pick yourself, um, you will make the change. That is half the battle. What people do, and you know it in your work, is people find, you know, if you're training people in martial arts and people feel as though they're not making progress, they give up. Um, but those who don't give up and ride through the challenges and the bumps and not being good enough and all of that will eventually break through and they'll eventually make progress. And that is one of the things that I've learnt in this. And I learned it on that, um, uh, that run was one foot in front of the other. No matter how tough this gets, I'm going to continue to, to, to do that. Absolutely. I think there's some really important actionable things that, you know, points that you raise that people can put into play in their life. So as we come to the end of this, Andrew, what I want to ask is what would be your final words of inspiration be? What would you want to leave the listener with? Yeah, so I, I would go that point I made earlier, which is that Joseph Campbell uh, quote, which is um, around the caves and, you know, the, the caves have the treasures that we seek. And I, I think if we were going to live a content and uh, the best life that we can, then um, finding those treasures by... Um, uh, getting outside our comfort zone and going, you know, I'm going to try this and asking yourself the question, you know, what am I skillfully avoiding? What caves have I, am I avoiding that if I changed, visited, would be a benefit to me in my life? And, and so for me, I knew that if I could um, go to the caves of vulnerability and connection, that would transform my life. And, and I feel it has. And so I encourage the people who are listening to your podcast is think about those caves they're avoiding and imagine the treasures that they might find if they're willing to do a bit of exploration. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.